the theme of tonight, the last night's talk, um, is really about being with others. And obviously the primary Buddhist virtue that's concerned with being with others, um, apart from metta, which of course we've spent basically the whole week on uh, developing, is compassion. No matter what form of Buddhism you look at, no matter what form, what cultural variety, you will always find compassion pretty well at the heart of what is going on in those traditions, none more so probably than Tibetan Buddhism, um, which actually makes a big, big thing about compassion, particularly in relationship to a figure called the Bodhisattva. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, because this is the one instance in the whole week where I'm going to introduce something from a different tradition. We've been talking pretty well about early Buddhism um, the whole way through, and the perspective I've been giving is pretty well the early Buddhist perspective. But in this particular instance, um, this later development of Buddhism, which is known as Mahayana, uh, the great vehicle, um, has a lot to say about compassion because it's a major aspect of the whole path. Let me say a little bit, first of all, about the etymology. Oh, horrible word, isn't it? Etymology. Etymology of the word compassion in its Sanskrit Pali form. Um, the actual word is karuna in its uh, Sanskrit Pali form. And it's derived, as all Sanskrit Pali words are, from roots. And these are kind of grammatical fictions that actually tell you what the words mean. And the actual meaning of the word karuna, or the root of it, is something called kri, which means to turn outwards. And I think this gives you a little bit of a clue about what compassion is really about, um, particularly in relationship to our ordinary ways of being. Basically it means turning away from your own selfish neurotic strivings and actually looking out there and seeing there's a world out there with other people in it, other than me. That is what is meant by compassion. That's the initial movement. The actual movement is literally a turning round and, and looking and seeing that there are other suffering beings in the world other than yourself. And you don't need me to reiterate yet again just how locked in we are to our own patterns of distress. Um, one way really of translating the term dukkha would be patterns of distress, because in many ways that's what we're all caught up in, our own little cries of distress. Um, however, we're turned inwards looking at that particular um, conglomeration of causes and conditions which we call pain and suffering and disease and all the things I've mentioned over the week. Now this is very much brought to the fore in the story of the Buddha's awakening, this actual whole notion of turning outwards. I don't know how many of you know the kind of mythology of the story of the Buddha, but it really is a mythology, it's not a biography at all. I mean, very little actually is known about the, the actual historical figure of the Buddha whatsoever, other than the small snippets that we see within the canon itself. I mean, the Buddha didn't write, sit down and write his autobiography, um, and nobody really did it at the time either. 
Um, people weren't really that interested. So it's a mythology which tells you what is important. But in this particular mythology, what happens is the Buddha attains awakening, but he's not yet a Buddha at this stage. The main quality or chief characteristic of a figure which is known as the Buddha, the fully awakened one, is that they teach. And at this stage, after he's attained awakening, he's actually going to himself all this stuff, it's really difficult. I wonder if I could actually ever you know, describe it to anybody. <laughs> That's what he's actually saying to himself. He says, I don't know whether to teach this or not. It is so complex, it is so profound, that I don't know whether I can actually express this to others. And then it says, he turns and looks and sees the great mass of suffering humanity. And out of that particular movement, which is the movement of compassion, he decides to teach, and then he becomes a Buddha. So as you can see, even at that stage of awakening, even at that stage, there is a kind of indecision whether to actually go out and help others. And this is the movement. This is about the movement of moving out into the world and helping others. The way it's described by Buddha Gosa, he uses a lot of similes which you're actually comparing it with <coughs> a mother's relationship to a child. <coughs> and as you heard me say, in relation to metta, the relationship is to a mother with her only child. Yeah, that's the relationship. Now, in this particular case, it's the relationship of a mother to her sick child. And that is meant to be the, in a sense, motivating force, that kind of relationship that one has um, with suffering humanity or suffering beings. That's broadened out of humanity, actually. That's broadened into this vast world of the totality of suffering. And if you actually look around you and you'll see that there is this vast mass of suffering occurring in the world, <clears throat> from the conflagrations that we often see in various parts of the world to the individual tales of suffering. W.H. Auden once said in one of his poems, every time you quietly shut the window or close the door, there is somebody suffering. Yeah. Quietly. Yeah. And it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful wake up that actually in everything we do there is somebody somewhere quietly suffering and I'm using the big term here because sometimes it can be really really you know, very devastating distress that people are encountering and going through and this is the motivation to want to be with others to help this movement into compassion, away from one's own compulsions and obsessions about ourself. Now we've seen that the notion of the self, or the way I've described it and explored it with you, the notion of the self is a chimera. However, it is also compassion that helps to whittle away this notion of the self, this solid sense that we have, this egotistical, selfish sense. Because what we do in the moment we engage and start to enter into the world of metta and karuna, loving kindness and compassion, we move into a world which is perhaps more really seen in terms of selflessness as opposed to our own selfish concerns. 
And it's this selflessness which is at the heart. Now this, as I'm going to go on to say, is not stupid selflessness. It's not blind selflessness. It's a selflessness which is directed by understanding and it's also directed by what we call wisdom. So it's not a rather silly, soppy, stupid selflessness. And also, the one thing we need to start to hear when we think about the term compassion is that it's not all of one variety. And I think I mentioned this right at the beginning of the week, that compassion isn't all of one variety. It's not all of one type uh, by any means. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism, um, some of you will be familiar with it, in Tibetan Buddhism they have these things, there's actually there's one out, um, outside in the sort of kind of vestibule area where the notice boards are, which are called tankas. Tankas generally are representations of Buddha figures or Bodhisattva figures or images of wisdom and compassion. Um, they represent, they're kind of manifestations, they're pictorial manifestations of these qualities of wisdom and compassion. Now, I remember in my very early days going around to monasteries um, and wanting to be, because I was kind of completely ignorant, knew absolutely nothing about what was going on at all. And I was kind of going, groping at these things, you know, because if you're on kind of the Catholic end of Buddhism, <laughs> Tibetan Buddhism is it, is it. It's all bells and smells, basically. <laughs> So there's an awful lot of imagery, an awful lot of ritual, an awful lot of things. And when you go into a Tibetan temple, and actually the walls are covered with pictorial illustrations of these figures of wisdom and compassion. And some of them are covered up, and they have to kind of silk face over the front of the image itself to protect the image, and also to hide it sometimes from um, prying eyes. I was one of the prying eyes. <laughs> Um, I used to go around and look at them, I had a monk accompanying me and I was going, these are soft, gentle figures, you know, very youthful or dressed in silk clothes and seated on deer skins and looking very serene in gestures like this. You know, I'd go, and what's that image? And he'd go, oh, that's compassion. I go, oh, yeah. <laughs> I can really see that. And we all run loads of these images, like this, all these soft, gentle figures. And then I said, what's behind that one with a kind of sheet hanging over it? And he says, oh, well, I don't know if I really ought to show you that. And I said, oh, come on. And he kind of lifted this thing up. And there's this kind of demonic figure there who's sitting there, seated there, completely black, the whole figure. Kind of, kind of, it was like a massive kind of grotesque um, monster that you can imagine in some kind of cartoon character. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, got a halo of fire behind it. And around its uh, neck it's got this garland of severed heads. Um, and it's trampling on corpses. And just to add to the kind of little decorative features of this figure, he's holding this skull, just the top of the skull, and it's brimming with blood. <laughs> and I said, and what does that one represent? He goes, oh, that's compassion as well. <laughs> and I think this kind of makes it clear that there are different varieties of compassion here that we're talking about. Some of it is of the kind of variety that we would suspect. Soft and gentle um, and very passive, 
very kind of um, very flowing and primarily its, its, its tone is one of gentleness however the figures which are called wrathful deities actually and there are many of them and there are also ones representing wisdom as well within this tradition these figures uh, represent the dynamic aspect of compassion they represent the aspect which gets things done um, they represent the aspects of compassion, for example, that you see sometimes, or almost manifest as anger, but they're not. They might be the kind of anger that one experiences at the devastation of the world, which has occurred you know, during our lifetimes anyway, and wants to get something done about it, wants to really, really do something about it. It is also the kind of <coughs> compassion that might shout at a child seeming angrily to stop it from hurting itself. It's that sort of compassion. So there is not one variety. And sometimes what seems to be anger perhaps is compassion, particularly in relation to getting things done. You know, to actually actually causing change, causing things to be stirred up and for change to be affected. And so we need to really appreciate that, that there is not just one species and one variety of compassion we're trying to develop. Because what we're trying to develop in many ways, just to use a philosophical term just very briefly, and I'll explain it, which is an epistemological eye, a way of knowing the world. And compassion becomes a way of knowing the world and moving through the world, which enables us to engage in deeds. It's all very well <clears throat> sitting um, in meditation centre in a beautiful part of Devon feeling gooily compassionate. <laughs> you know, it's actually whether it has any consequences, whether it actually does anything. As I've been trying to emphasise to you throughout the week, I mean, through the whole week I've been emphasising this aspect of actually where it counts is in your ordinary day-to-day -day encounters. Now, from that basis of love and kindness, you have the foundation for the development and the movement into a much more compassionate attitude and a much more compassionate way of seeing the world. Now, this manifests particularly in our relationships. And there is one term, and I'm going to switch now into talking a little bit about Mahayana Buddhism, and because it's so important, the notion of compassion within it. There is a term within Mahayana Buddhism which is used, which is the main motivational force, and it's called bodhicitta. Um, just for those who, who don't know these pronunciations, is chitta, not chitta. Uh, every time I hear bodhicitta, I always get the vision of this kind of thing bounding across the African <laughs> plane. <laughs> you know, the awakened cat. <laughs> But no, it's bodhicitta, okay, that's, a, that's a digression. Nevertheless, coming back to bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is that impetus that wants to attain awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. Not for oneself, but for the benefit of all sentient beings. And it's really the major relational term what we see, I think, enacted, and again, you have to forgive me if I digress into our problems again 
here because I think it needs to we need some clarity about this as well because what we see enacted in ordinary daily life is not a compassionate attitude towards people. In fact, a lot of what passes for relationship in ordinary life is not relationship whatsoever. Um, I almost sometimes feel when I'm hearing conversations particularly um, that I'm stuck inside a Harold Pinter play. Um, do you ever notice Harold Pinter plays? Nobody ever actually really talks to each other in Harold Pinter plays. Um, they're always kind of separated from each other in some way. And what's played out often in the term of relationship is this separation, almost the idea of not conversation and dialogue, but interrupted monologue. You know, where people are kind of just interrupting each other's monologues and stories, that's all, without any coming together. Now, this was brought home to me in a very amusing fashion many years ago, and I know some people in this room have heard me say this many times. Um, but it was brought home to me many years ago, in particular the relationship between the sexes, how sometimes there's very, very little relationship, actually, uh, at all, between the sexes. Um, because everybody's locked into their, same, yeah, into their own egotistical concerns, so there's very little getting out into you know, kind of any mutual sharing, any mutual ground in which to explore real relationship and what the notion of relationship might be. And this was a series of cartoons. You learn a lot from cartoons sometimes. Uh, it was a cartoon of uh, a woman and man sitting around a table. It was obviously a dinner table because there was a bottle of wine in the middle and a kind of couple of plates and that. And the, the, the woman in the cartoon was kind of leaning back in her chair, listening. And the man was leaning across the table. And above each bubble in his head, and there were loads of them, absolutely stacks of them, it just went, me. 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 <laughs> it went on for about ten squares like this, of this thing. Just going, me, 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 all the way through. And so eventually it gets to, well, this is finished talking about what he's saying, and, and the woman leans across the table, and he leans back, and above the bubble in her head, it goes, me. <laughs> and he goes, Now, I think that says quite a lot about some of the relationships that are actually there. Because what you're really interested in is you. <laughs> Not really interested in the other person. So there's really no coming together. There is no kindness. There's very, very little love. And there certainly is no compassion as, as a means, even of the listening process, even involved in the listening process. To listen with a compassionate ear, to listen with the eye, you know, to listen with the ear of kindness. These are some of the major facets of the Buddhist path. So that we actually, when we listen, we really listen. And how many of us really listen? Um, Michel Foucault, the French philosopher, once said, "We're a very peculiar culture. We actually pay people to lend them to lend us their ears." <laughs> Obviously, speaking about the whole idea of therapy. Yeah, it's a strange culture in which we do this um, because people don't actually listen to us a lot of the time so we need to pay somebody for the hire of their ears often <laughs> so um, bodhicitta is really about coming into correct relationship with others a relationship with others which is a relationship of help a relationship of mutual reciprocity um, of being together in this world and helping each other. 
Shantideva, the great Buddhist poet, who wrote a very, very famous text called the Bodhichara Avatara, in around about the 6th, 7th century. Um, and it's the classic kind of manual of uh, Mahayana Buddhism that's used particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, but it's, it's famous throughout the Buddhist world, basically, this particular text. But in one particular part of the text, he says it makes no sense to talk about my pain as opposed to your pain. It only, mean, it only makes sense to talk about pain. That is all. In other words, what we share. Yeah. And I joked about it last night, I said we're all suffering together in this room. And in a way that is true, because that is what is happening. We all have different types of distress, obviously because of our histories, because of our backgrounds, um, from where we've come from. However, the one thing that characterizes virtually all of us in samsara is the fact that we are all suffering forms of distress. How can we help each other? This is the main impetus behind bodhicitta. How can we help each other? How can we be in this world together and help? That which is important is flagged up by the idea, of course, that we are not islands unto ourselves. And no matter how much we think, and I mentioned this again, and obviously even through this week I'm kind of referring to things I've said again and again and again, just putting them in slightly different ways. And what I said one, other, one night was, we think, we think, we're autonomous. We're not. We're far from autonomous. Our autonomy is a very, very fragile, imaginative thing. Because virtually everything um, that we need to live in this world is provided by others. And within these forms of Buddhism, within Mahayana Buddhism, in other words, it actually stresses that we should look towards the kindness of others. Yes rather than, oh, there's those irritating people again. Yeah. And I know I keep joking about this, but I'm trying to make a point. As often our relationship with others can be that they are there in some senses to annoy us, to irritate us, apart from our close friends, of course, and our immediate family, who sometimes irritate us too. <laughs> Yet... What this movement, this reframing movement, because that is what it is, it's a reframing movement, it's actually taking us into the heart of our day-to-day -day lived experience and saying, you, for your day-to-day -day lived existence, need others. You know, there's very few of us, I'm sure, if we were stuck in isolation, could survive at all. You know, we've A, lost the skills for one thing, um, but... We need others. We need others for, you know, for our being, for our being in the world. So our being in the world is not isolated, it's relational. The fact of one existential, well, one existential fact actually really points to this, doesn't it? Our sense of being alone. We could only be alone if we were meant to be with others. Now, so those moments when we feel very alone and isolated indicate actually our being is crying out to be with because that is our primary mode of being in the world. Yeah. And I think we forget that. We tend to forget that in this isolationist, individualistic society that we live in. 
um, that thinks it has this autonomy, that thinks that um, we are alone, as I say, as islands unto ourselves, and we're not. And Mahayana Buddhism really flags this up and tries to emphasise that all of those basic things, virtually you know, everything we have got on, you know, the roof above our head, the food that we eat is provided by others. So why not say it's provided by the kindness of others? And not just human beings. Remember that. It's not just human beings that provide for us. It's all sorts of different types and varieties of beings provide for us in their way. And if, for example, we're a meat eater, see what happens. Or a fish eater, things give up their lives in order for you to survive. Now this, in a way, should generate some degree of kindness, some degree, certainly, of compassion, or humility, actually. The one thing that I often try to stress in relationship to this is that it should make us feel incredibly humble rather than arrogant. We can stride around feeling kind of, you know, king of the world or queen of the world, and yet actually we're the you know, kind of merest vassal here, supported uh, by all these myriads of beings in the world. And so our arrogance is based on a false, you know, a false notion. Our conceit is built on a false notion. And the movement in compassion to compassion is starting to see our relationship, is actually to see our interconnectedness with others so that we do not have this feeling of isolation isolation that we can do in the contemporary world. Now, this form, this this form of Buddhism that lays so much stress on compassion, uses the figure of what is called the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva is the would-be Buddha, somebody who is on the path to Buddhahood. Now again, within the traditions, the traditions are replete with stories, um, which are known as Jataka tales. And Jataka tales are the stories of basically the the figure who is going to become a Buddha um, and their deeds. And I'm afraid they're all rather monotonous, because they're all deeds of self-sacrifice. One, two of the classic ones, um, there's one particular one where there's a tigress with her starving cubs and the Bodhisattva gives up his body to feed the cubs. <laughs> and there's one where the figure of the Bodhisattva is so compassionate he even gives away his family. <laughs> I don't know quite how I feel about that one, but never mind. <laughs> And it's actually a very famous jataka, it's called the Vasantra jataka. It's one of the famous ones within Theravada Buddhism. But the whole purpose of these stories, obviously, is the moral. That in order to, uh, that one attain in, in our progress towards awakening is not just for ourselves. It's kind of this decentering of the notion of the self. Of again, getting it out of the way, eroding it by activities such as generosity because obviously one of the major constituents of these Jataka tales, these kind of moralistic tales, um, is actually, of course, to stress the virtues that are required for us to attain this particular goal, 
And the goal here is not just awakening, it's full and perfect Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. Just kind of a little goal. <laughs> um, but I think even, even though it seems like an enormous mountain to climb, I think we can get the impression of what it's about. It's actually about others. It's not about ourselves. It's the way that we do it. The actual way it's often formulated, slightly wrongly actually, in most of the popular literature you find out, is saying that the Bodhisattva puts off awakening until every sentient creature has attained awakening. Yeah, in other words, they put off their own awakening until every sentient creature. I always think this is a terribly English conception um, of awakening. You know, can you imagine the last two bodhisattvas in the world? <laughs> <laughs> after you. No, after you. <laughs> that is not actually what it's about. <laughs> What it's actually about is the attainment of full and perfect Buddhahood for the benefit of all sentient beings. And what that means is, of course, that only really that goal of Buddhahood uh, and the attainment of that goal of Buddhahood are you in a position to actually help others. Now, all this might seem idealistic, and I don't want to put it into the realms of ideals because I want to keep it down to earth. It's the way that we enact, the way that we enact our progress to what we would call awakening on our day-to-day -day basis. Is it just for you, or is it for others around you as well? Now, as you can see, the moment we start to speak in those terms, the orientation starts from placing the spotlight on us to start placing it on others. What can I do for others rather than what can they do for me becomes the, the, the rubric here. And that's one that's really, really worth thinking about. What, what can I do for others in this world rather than how can people help me? We live in a very much a society that takes a lot but often gives back very little. Not entirely, I don't want to be completely cynical about this because you know, we have some very good aspects to our societies. Um, but often in this individualistic society it is basically about appropriation and taking for ourselves um, what we want. Now one of the defining characteristics of much of Buddhist art, if you ever have a look at it, and um, particularly some of these Tibetan statues and Tibetan um, you know, tankas and that, you'll find that the gestures that they enact or are represented are gestures of awakening. And one of the major gestures that you'll find on many of the figures, and actually you've got one, I think it's outside in the vestibule there, a figure called Padmapani, who's actually the figure of compassion again. And what does he have? He has his hand open like this. This is the gesture of giving. Yeah. It's really to remind us that that should be our major way of being in this world. Open-handedness. It's a wonderful metaphor, isn't it? And both literally and figuratively. You know, the idea of the open hand that gives and dispenses. Again, this is used, and I really want to talk about the iconography, because what it tells us about you know, the... the um, the prominence of compassion in these traditions. And um, there is a figure which is known as the Thousand-Armed the, the thousand Avalokiteshvara. Um, Avalokiteshvara is the, literally the word Avalokiteshvara in, in Sanskrit means the Lord who looks down. 
And what he's looking down for is compassion, is, is suffering in order to help others. And he has a thousand arms to help. And within each of the um, palms of the hands, which are represented as an eye, which is the looking. Yeah, that palm is not just simply there, it's looking to dispense compassion and help to those in need. He also has nine heads. There's quite a nice story about that, because it says that when Avalokiteshwara looked around the world, he saw so much suffering, it overcame him, and his head shattered. And when they put it back together, there was nine heads, <laughs> all facing in different directions, all again looking for suffering in order to relieve that suffering, to help others. Now, as you can see, it's that eye that is looking around, that eye which really sees the need um, that others often um, are crying out for. You know? Often others are saying something to you that because of our insensitivity, our desensitized natures often, that we don't pick up on. You know, everything from the gestures of the body to the tone of the voice. You know? How many how many of us very how many of us really look further than the kind of simple response to a question? Yeah. How are you today? I feel fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm again sending it up to make a particular point. But obviously intonation and tone say something more than the actual words do. You know, the, the gestures of the body, the way that somebody is, says far more than simply you know, what we expect to see of, of somebody. So it means looking out with great, great sensitivity for what the cry of the other is in order to help. And all of this is founded on, and almost as a prerequisite for the development of compassion, is this sense of imaginative empathy. To imagine what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes, no matter how unpleasant that might be at some times. Because even when somebody is an act in destructive behaviour, to actually look and place yourself in their shoes as to the possibilities why they might be engaging in that form of destructive behaviour. And it can be very hard to do that. This whole placing oneself in that position, and actually in the Pali Canon, this word is used far, far more ever than the word karuna, which is the word for compassion, is used, which is anukampa, you know, the word which really means to appreciate the crying out of the other. Yeah. As I said the other night when I kind of glossed this, it's to cry out at the crying out of the other. Yeah. Now all of this, of course, should lead to action, not to, again, merely head stuff. And it's so easy for us, isn't it? It's so easy for us to descend into thinking um, in terms of our heads, rather than just in terms of what we can do, how we can physically you know, help others in some way. 
Yeah. And helping others might not actually literally be doing in the sense of you know, physically doing. It might be opening oneself up to genuinely listening to another. Yeah. And that is so difficult for us, isn't it? As I kind of indicated again the other night. Because far, far too often the internal chatter is so great it overwhelms any possibility. Now I spoke this morning about papancha. You know, proliferation, the obstacle, the obstruction you know, that comes down when the chatter is so great, I can't hear anything that's being said, really, or very little. And if I do hear something, it's often getting the wrong end of the story or the wrong picture entirely. And I go away with that. However, you know, again, we live in a culture that thinks it has to constantly do and solve and everything else, you know, to solve problems. And that might not be what the crying out of another requires. It might just be the ear to hear, distress. It might just be that ear that's required to be open and non-judgmental in somebody telling their story, somebody telling their position. Now, I'm sure most of us have probably been in that position, wanting at some point in our lives to tell somebody something in a non-judgmental way without them constantly wanting to jump in and solve your problem for you. Yeah. And that's so rare because you know, mostly we want to problem solve because it's getting something done and it's rather uncomfortable, isn't it, just to sit and listen to somebody. You're probably feeling this now. <laughs> It becomes rather uncomfortable to listen to another's distress, isn't it? It's particularly painful to listen to another's distress and really open and not feel compelled because of habit, again picking up themes in the week, compelled because of habit, to want to keep responding, you know, to want to keep saying something within it. You know, to fill up the space, the awkward silence sometimes. Now, in a way, what I'm trying to indicate by this is there's all the breakdown of relationship again. You know, relationship occurs when there's an opening. You know, when I open towards the other. When there is that genuine, cleared space for the other to manifest. You know, unless there is that cleared space, um, where there is a self, there can be no other. And I'm afraid that is the sad story of a lot of human relationship, is where there isn't a real clearing, then the other really doesn't manifest. And so we get these kind of really big problems of people who live together for vast periods of time and really, really don't see each other whatsoever. What they do is they, cover, they carry around in their memory a kind of freeze-frame shot of somebody at a particular type, you know, period of time. And when, of course, the, actual, the actuality no longer quite matches the, the, the snapshot they have in their mind, they go, you've changed. Yeah. And that's terribly sad. I mean, I'm joking about it, but it's terribly sad, isn't it? It's terribly tragic when people, in a sense, haven't done something with the changes in their life and so there's real relationship and extension of listening and being with the other, being for the other in those lives. And the difficulty, of course, of human relationships in the 
Buddhist world from the Buddhist perspective is, of course, change is always going on. The other person is always changing just as you are. No matter who you're in relationship with, they are changing, I'm changing. So what is the best way of living together? Negotiated change. That's all it can be. A dialogue of negotiated change. Because otherwise it becomes completely unrealistic. And then that so-called love breaks down. But, you know, the so-called love that's involved in the relationship. Now all of this, and again as usual we I'm over talking and running out of time, um, but all of this is, as I say, about the relational field. How we come into relationship with others around us. Uh, the bodhicitta is there as a means of helping us into our relationship. How do we care for others? It's interesting, actually, this is a thought that just occurs within Buddhism. Um, even a 20th century philosopher, uh, Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher, actually in being in time, is kind of magnum opus of a work, actually says, we are most ourselves when we're caring for others. Yeah. He says, unfortunately, what happens is that genuine care gets narrowed down into an inauthentic version of it. And he calls this concern. We are concerned, and our concern is actually only spread around in a very limited field, usually friends and family. You know? Whereas care is much vaster. And again, it's a bit like you know, the why can't we, you know, why are we meant to be with others? Um, and it's expression through aloneness. You know, feeling alone is an expression of the existential fact of actually being with others as being our major way of being in the world. And so care, as a general, general, general operative factor, gets kind of watered down into simple concern you know, for a very, very small number of people rather than having this wider field, this wider field of operation. Well, the big news is, or the good news, the bad news, I don't know how you want to take it, is the field of operation is the whole of sentient beings. <laughs> this is the field of operation here. How we come into relationship with all beings that are around us. Is our own being in daily life expressive of concern or is it expressive of care? Is it expressive of care for others? Now, one thing I would say about this, of course, that all of it needs wisdom. Um, you're not expected to be a compassion doormat. <laughs> you know, because that can be, obviously, um, the inauthentic expression of compassion. And often, of course, in those aspects of people who constantly give and give and give and give, without actually being compassionate or kind towards themselves, we often find that turns to martyrdom and resentment very easily. You know, of moving into that, you know, kind of giving and giving and giving, but there is actually no place to give from. There is actually no real care and compassion for oneself. So this is why, fundamentally, also, there has to be wisdom involved in this. There has to be the eye of understanding, the eye of insight as to how much you can give and when you can give. Now obviously that's replete with dangers as well because we can kid ourselves. 
you know, how much we can give, you know, both ways, how little or too much. In both instances, we can, you know, vacillate between the two of them. And so it means keeping a very, very clear, mindful way of being to know how much we have, what our resources are. And if we have resources, to be able to give. And I mean that in the widest possible sense of the word. And this is nothing about materialism. Sometimes it might be, but it's more of the giving of ourselves. And remember we've been speaking about generosity last night, and this is, if you like, compassion is the ultimate generosity towards others. It's the ultimate relational way of being in the world. Now this is not a pitying. I think we need to really, really kind of um, bracket that one out. That is not pity. You know, this is not looking down from on high um, at others and um, placing yourself above them. Because remember, at this stage, that we are all suffering. We are all, in a sense, in the same boat. As, remember the Shantideva quote? It's not your suffering, not my suffering, but just suffering or pain that we have to deal with. So, to kind of wind this up, what we have with compassion in Buddhism throughout the traditions, particularly as it's expressed, and I've really done it mainly through Mahayana Buddhism this evening, is the ultimate way of being in the world. The ultimate way of moving around the world with the eye of compassion, looking for where we can help, where we can care. In order to do that, in order to be able to do that, it requires immense selflessness. It requires us to work on ourselves, to start to diminish this egotistical sense that we have. What we do is we step out into an open world rather than a closed world. The world of the ego, I don't know if you ever find it so. It's terribly claustrophobic. Yeah. Yeah. Being stuck inside with you all the time, it really is a bore, <laughs> after a while. Yeah. It's far nicer to step out into the open field of compassion, the open field of kindness, the open field of generosity, than it is to be stuck inside of this egotistical, selfish, claustrophobic, rather small environment. And, just to finish, I want to read you something. This is an extract from Shantideva in the British Avatar, something I translated for another purpose. Um, but it's some extracts from it which I've put together in a particular way, which I think gives you a sense of the enormity of the vision. Now, you might not want to buy into it, but I think it would be quite good for you to hear it, because it shows the enormity of the vision that there, is, that there exists in some dimensions of Buddhist thought and practice. Our medicine for the sick and weary... May I be their physician and their nurse until disease appears no more. May I strike down the anguish of thirst and hunger with rains of food and drink. May I be food and drink to them in famine and disaster. May I be an inexhaustible treasure for those in need. May I be a servant to give them all they desire. My body, my pleasure, my merit, now and forever, everywhere. I care nothing for them, I cast them aside to accomplish the aim of all beings. May I be a protector for the unprotected, a guide for wanderers, a boat, a bridge, a causeway, for those who desire the other shore, 
and a lamp for those who need a lamp, a bed for those who need a bed, a slave for those who need a slave, for all beings. And may I be a wishing gem, an inexhaustible vase, a magic spell, a great medicine, a wish-fulfilling tree, a cow of plenty, for all beings. As the elements of earth and water and fire and air are for the use of all beings who dwell in all of space in many ways, may I, may I be the means of sustenance for the realm of beings in all of space until all have passed into nirvana. And by my merit, may the blind see and the deaf hear, the fearful cease to tremble, the afflicted be consoled, and the weary be made content. May the sick be made whole again, and those in bondage freed. And may the weak be strong and loving to each other. And as long as the earth and the sky shall last, may I remain here to heal the sorrows of the world. To heal the sorrows of the world, I take upon myself the sorrows, sorrows of the world. And may the world be happy. Okay, that's it. <laughs> Just simple, isn't it? <laughs> but I think it shows you the enormity of the vision that's there. You know, it's not kind of just a little compassion. It's uh, what's called Mahakaruna, the great compassion. That's at the heart of this practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.